Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 92, The Revere Beach Riot. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're going to discuss an epic brawl that broke out on Revere Beach during the heyday of its popularity. In the early 20th century, Revere Beach was seen as Boston's Coney Island, with roller coasters, restaurants, and dance halls lining the beach just north of the city. We'll also discuss Fort Banks, a former military installation in Winthrop that we just learned about while researching this episode. But before we talk about bullets on the boardwalk, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. For this week's historic site, we're featuring the Ether Dome at Massachusetts General Hospital. On October 16, 1846, William Thomas Green Morton, a local dentist, Use ether to anesthetize Edward Gilbert Abbott in what was the first public display of ether as a surgical anesthetic. John Collins Warren, late great-nephew of Major General Dr. Joseph Warren and the first dean of Harvard Medical School, then painlessly removed part of a tumor from Abbott's neck. After Abbott regained consciousness, Warren asked the patient how he felt. Reportedly, Abbott said, feels as if my neck's been scratched. Actually, it's a really great story, and we'll save it for another day. The Ether Dome is one of the oldest operating theaters in the United States. Over the years, there's been a concerted effort to restore the original architecture of the Ether Dome, while also incorporating modern technology for educational uses today. The dome's architecture resembles that of a courtroom or a theater house, where surgeries were performed at the center of the dome. The room has seats arranged in the style of an amphitheater to allow surgeons and doctors to see the details of the medical procedures being performed. The location of the dome and the large glass ceiling and windows that compose the dome let in light for operations to be performed. Modern-day surgery theaters follow the same concept of the ether dome stylistic arrangement, but your surgeon probably uses a headlamp rather than large windows. Between 1821 and 1868, more than 8,000 operations were performed in the Ether Dome. Today, it's a teaching amphitheater and a historical landmark. Visitors can explore the unique architecture and a small collection of artifacts, including an oil painting of the famous first surgery, an Egyptian mummy, and early surgical tools. Located on the fourth floor of the Bullfinch Building at 55 Fruit Street, the museum is free and open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring a talk by author Ryan Walsh, who you may remember from episode 70, when he joined us to discuss his new book, Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968. The event website describes the book as a mind-expanding dive into a lost chapter of 1968, featuring the famous and forgotten Van Morrison, Folky-turned-cult-leader Mel Lyman, Timothy Leary, James Brown, and many more. Van Morrison's Astral Weeks is an iconic rock album shrouded in legend, a masterpiece that has touched generations of listeners and influenced everyone from Bruce Springsteen to Martin Scorsese. Walsh unearths the album's fascinating backstory, along with the untold secrets of the time and place that birthed it, Boston, 1968. The event will be held on Thursday, August 16th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at the Boston Public Library main branch in Copley Square. 
We'll have a link in this week's show notes to more information. And now it's time for this week's main topic. With the insane humidity we've had over the last few weeks, the frigid waters off Boston's beaches have become especially tempting. You could head to South Boston and combine a trip to the beach with Castle Island and a lobster roll from Sully's, or you could head to Constitution Beach in Eastie, where you'll find, wait for it, a parking lot. But the quintessential beach experience requires a trip north to Revere Beach. Mass Moments describes what one might consider the history of tourism to Revere Beach. The first summer visitors to the four-and-a-half-mile-long beach at Revere were the Pawtucket Indians, who camped there during the warmer months. The shallow waters were a rich source of food, and the sandy beach was ideal for the games of skill that the natives played. When English colonists settled the area, they saw little value in the beach for work or play. It would be several hundred years before anyone would again capitalize on the economic and recreational potential of Revere Beach. In 1871, when North Chelsea changed its name to Revere in honor of the man who carried the alarm to Lexington, the town had just over a thousand residents, most of them farmers and fishermen. Four years later, the Boston, Revere Beach, and Lynn Narrow Gauge Railroad began operating from Lynn to East Boston. Now, it was easy for city dwellers to get to the beach, and within a decade, the population of Revere tripled. RevereBeach.com tells us the origin story of the country's first public beach. In 1895, the Massachusetts legislature ordered the taking of nearly three miles of private seacoast land on what is now Revere Beach Reservation. The Metropolitan Park Commission was entrusted with the land in 1896. Charles Elliott, a little-known landscape designer, was chosen by the Park Commission to design Revere Beach Reservation for the best use by the public. Elliott was born in Cambridge, and he graduated from Harvard University and trained under the supervision of Frederick Law Olmsted, whose works include New York Central Park and the grounds of the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. Elliott aimed to showcase the grand and refreshing sight of Revere Beach, with its long, simple curve and its open view of the ocean. Nothing, he declared, presents a more striking contrast to the jumbled, noisy scenery of the city. To achieve this vision, the MPC demolished more than a 100 privately owned structures along the beach. The existing narrow-gauge railway was relocated 400 yards back from the beach, charting the course now used by the MBTA Blue Line the MPC built a broad boulevard, an elegant public bathhouse, shade pavilions, and a bandstand. 45,000 people attended the opening day on July 12, 1896. Beachgoers were required to rent their suits at the bathhouse, and the reservation manufactured, repaired, and laundered the apparel. Frolickers took tunnels to travel from the bathhouse under the boulevard to the beach which was lined with pavilions. RevereBeach.com details the short life of America's first amusement park, which opened just a decade after the beach. Wonderland Park, Revere Beach's mystic city by the sea, was America's foremost self-contained amusement park. Conceived in 1905, it opened in 1906. Some people believe it to be the inspiration behind the Disney theme parks of today. 
Wonderland was built on 25.9 acres of land known today as the Wonderland Dog Track. Because of the success of Revere Beach Boulevard, three men worked together to create Wonderland. John J. Higgins, a commercial real estate broker, and Floyd C. Thompson, a visionary with interest in amusement parks, combined their talents with those of another important figure in Wonderland's history, Major Thomas D. Barrel. Major Barrel had a very distinguished military career and had many skills as an entrepreneur. The centerpiece of Wonderland Park was a beautiful lagoon that was part of an elaborate and exciting ride. The ride was called Shoot the Shoot. It was one of the most unique in all the world. Passengers would be lifted in their gondolas to the top of a steep grade. Once at the top, the gondola would be dropped down the water slide and back down into the huge lagoon below. Like Disney's theme parks, parades occurred daily. There were international cultural exhibits, demonstrations, educational displays, and also scientific exhibits, such as the infant incubators at the park's full-service hospital. Wonderland Park existed for just six years. In 1911, because of their aggressive approach to outdo previous exhibits and the unpredictable New England weather, its operators suffered great financial difficulty and had to close down. Despite the loss of Wonderland, from its opening up through the early 1960s, Revere Beach was considered to be Boston's Coney Island. The beach contained a large amusement park, dance halls, ballrooms, and bars. If you think it's crowded today, in its heyday, 250,000 people would visit Revere Beach on a hot summer day, traveling by automobile, streetcar, and narrow-gauge railway. For the thrill-seekers, the boardwalk roller coasters were the biggest draw. The Cyclone was a wooden roller coaster that operated from 1925 until 1969. When the Cyclone was constructed, it was the tallest roller coaster ever built, as well as being the first roller coaster in the world to reach 100 feet in height. In addition, some also claim that it was the largest and fastest roller coaster, with a length of over 3,600 feet and top speeds between 45 and 50 miles per hour. As with Coney Island, Revere Beach's attractions were owned by a variety of operators, with the Cyclone being operated by the Shayeb family. In its heyday, Cyclone was a popular ride regularly transporting as many as 1,400 riders per hour, a rate which was quickly able to recoup the $125,000 cost of the coaster. The Cyclone was constructed by the notable roller coaster builder and pioneer Harry Traver and designed by Frederick Church. It was one of two roller coasters that Traver built at Revere Beach, the other being the Lightning. The Lightning operated from 1927 until 1933. Although the precise dimensions of Lightning are not known, it contained many steeply banked turns and a ground-level figure-eight track. In fact, there were no truly straight tracks apart from the station. The Lightning's hybrid steel structure allowed for much more steeply banked curves than would have been possible in an ordinary wooden frame roller coaster of the day. The steeply banked tracks often made quick transitions to steep banks in the opposite directions. Although the ride length was fairly short, about 40 seconds in duration from the top of the lift hill, it was an intense and often brutal ride experience. A rider died on the second day of operation when a girl fell to her death from the coaster. 
The ride was then shut down for 20 minutes so that her body could be removed before operation resumed. Despite the safety concerns, Lightning was initially popular. That popularity soon faded, however, due in part to its uncomfortable ride experience. Traver rides were called rib ticklers because of the violent side-to-side motions that would inflict rib injuries on riders. The ride was so rough, in fact, that the phrase, take her on the lightning, became a euphemism for the termination of unwanted pregnancies. Sadly, the lightning closed in 1933 due to the downturned economy and the high cost of insuring the ride, while the cyclone burned in a fire in 1969. Other roller coasters on the beach suffered similar fates. Occasionally, when I worked as a tour guide, someone would get swept up and say, Oh, wouldn't you just love to live in Victorian Boston? And I'd usually say something like, Sure, I'd go back for a day if I could do it as an upper-class white man and I could bring 21st century modern medicine with me. But I would totally go back for Revere Beach. I really like roller coasters and custard and pizza, and I'd probably ride the lightning. But I wouldn't go back pre-suffrage, so I would have missed something pretty exciting by a mere 10 days. It seems that the wholesome fun of a day at Revere Beach sometimes gave way to activities a little more seedy for a night at Revere Beach. Celebrate Boston describes the crowd. Revere Beach was very crowded at night and attracted a lot of young dance hall patrons from Boston. Postcards exist labeling Revere Beach Boulevard as the Great White Way, due to all the bright light bulbs at night along the concrete boardwalk. The beach also attracted a rough-and-ready crowd, with many sailors, juveniles, and aggressive young men going to the park on the weekends. So, how aggressive were they? On August 8, 1920, Metropolitan Parks Commission police officers attempted to arrest a drunk sailor. One has to imagine that this would have been a fairly standard occurrence on the boardwalk, but on this night things escalated quickly. Our reveler's fellow sailors attempted to extract him from custody, and a melee broke out. 400 of his closest friends surrounded the Metropolitan Police Station and let loose with a barrage of rocks. Taking advantage of the surroundings, someone arrived on the scene with guns from the boardwalk shooting gallery, which were then deployed in this bid for liberation. Martial law was essentially declared, and federal troops were called in from several locations to restore order, including Fort Banks and Winthrop, which was previously unknown to us, so we'll digress for a minute. Fort Banks was a U.S. coast artillery fort that served to defend Boston Harbor from attack from the sea, and was built in the 1890s. In 1892, construction began on the fort's four mortar pits, each of which was to hold four of the new 12-inch coast defense mortars capable of firing a half-ton projectile over six miles out to sea, thus effectively commanding the northern approaches into Boston Harbor. Construction on the mortar emplacements was completed in 1896. The two eastern mortar pits were designated as Battery Sanford Kellogg, and the two western ones as Battery Benjamin Lincoln, making these the first 12-inch coast defense mortar batteries to be completed anywhere in the U.S., the mortars were taken out of service in 1942. The four mortar pits were laid out in a design known as an Abbott Quad, which contained the 16 mortars in a sort of square of squares. This arrangement was designed such that if all the tubes were aimed in parallel and fired at the same time in a huge salvo, they would bracket an attacking ship with fire, 
somewhat like a huge shotgun blast. Since each shell could weigh over half a ton, a 16-mortar salvo of over 8 tons of steel and explosives was hoped to be a decisive deterrent to ships approaching the northern channels into Boston Harbor. In fact, the Army had planned to build two 16-gun Abbott quad arrays at Fort Banks, but the budget ran out before it was completed. Fort Banks was the World War II location for an anti-aircraft defense command post, a meteorological station, and a bunker holding the secure central switchboard for the Harbor Command. At one time, the fort became the headquarters for the Army's 9th Coast Artillery Regiment, which garrisoned much of the Boston Harbor defenses in the early part of World War II. The 241st Coast Artillery Regiment also used the fort as a headquarters. It also had a 250-bed hospital. After the fort was declared surplus by the Army in 1947, its land was purchased by the town of Winthrop and by private developers for municipal facilities and apartments. Today, almost all traces of the fort, except for the mortar pits and magazines, have been destroyed. Of the four mortar pits that originally made up the armament of the fort, only one survives in close to original condition, Pit B of Battery Kellogg. A good deal of the original floor of this pit is still visible due to excavations by the town in 1992. The western two pits have been partially filled and then paved over for parking, while the southeast pit has been covered up by a new building. But back to Revere Beach. The August 9, 1920 Lexington Herald describes the events that occurred on the night of the riot. Federal troops from Fort Banks and Winthrop were rushed to Revere Beach tonight after a crowd of sailors and Marines had attacked a Metropolitan Park police officer who had attempted to arrest a sailor on the charge of drunkenness. While thousands of Sunday night pleasure seekers looked on, the sailors and Marines, joined by a few soldiers and a number more than 400, took the prisoner from the officer and gave battle to other members of the force. Some of them seized rifles from nearby shooting galleries and opened fire on the police station. The police returned fire with revolvers and shotguns. Five sailors were seriously wounded, and there were many minor injuries. Help was summoned from Fort Banks, the Chelsea Police, and the Boston Navy Yard. A detachment of 300 soldiers from Fort Banks was hurried to the scene and proceeded with fixed bayonets to clear the beach. The police estimated the crowd at the beach at the time of the rioting to be about 100,000. The Navy authorities gave orders to the Navy Provost Guard that every sailor in Revere was to be arrested. More than 100 were placed under arrest, and the authorities seemed to have gained control of the situation. Several patrolmen were injured in the fighting, none seriously. Most of the minor injuries to policemen and bystanders were caused by flying stones when the mob hurled missiles at the police station. The windows were smashed, and much of the furniture in the station was broken. But you don't need to go back in time to experience a Revere Beach brawl. They actually break out more often than you'd think. NECN, for example, reports on a Mother's Day riot that broke out on May 10, 2015. More than 100 people brawled on a Massachusetts beach Sunday evening in a melee that saw bottles and rocks hurled, some at police, and nine people arrested. The fight broke out near the bandstand on Revere Beach soon before 6.15 p.m., when two girls or women began fighting, Mayor Dan Rizzo said. 
Their boyfriends joined in, and then their boyfriends' friends, and it kept growing from there, he said. Bottles and rocks were thrown during the fight, some of them at police officers. No injuries were reported. State police said nine people, five female, four male, were charged with disorderly conduct. To learn more about the history of Revere Beach, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 092. We'll have lots of images of the attractions, newspaper articles detailing the riot, and a video simulation of a riot on the cyclone. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. This week, we have listener feedback to share. Jessica Kay described a weird moment of synchronicity she had with the show recently. Walking to work and listening to Hub History, they mentioned Dr. Warren while I was passing the site of his house at Government Center. They mentioned King's Chapel while I was passing King's Chapel. Well, Jessica, that's kind of freaky. Let's hope you don't have the same parallels when you listen to our recent episode about the wintertime shipwreck of the Mary O'Hara. Listener Janica caught my panel at History Camp and tweeted, I really enjoyed hearing the origin story of your podcast. Can't wait to listen to it for the first time. Joe W. was also at the panel and said, It was nice to put a face to a handle. Thanks for talking about podcasting. We just want to say a big thank you to everyone who came out to see our panel at History Camp on July 7th. We got to meet a lot of fellow history nerds, and I'm hoping that we won over a few new listeners. Somebody who uses the handle Thug Majesty on Twitter reached out with a question about our podcast's accessibility. Out of curiosity, are the transcripts of your podcast available? I'm very interested in the subject matter, but have a much more difficult time focusing on audio than reading the words myself. Not trying to insult your chosen medium, just wondering if there's an alternative. Thanks. We would love to make our show more accessible for anyone who has a reason not to rely on an audio recording, but so far we haven't found an affordable, high-quality way to get transcriptions. But if you or a friend are interested in a specific episode, we'll make the same offer that we made to Thug Majesty. Send us a note, and we'll share the script that we worked from with you. Lastly, you know how we're always asking for iTunes reviews? Well, we just got a new one from Parsley Me. Hub history is great. Love this podcast. It's crazy how much interesting detail these two find on all sorts of historical topics. I love the timely local events and the audio clips from primary sources. Thanks for all the work that goes into this. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review, just like Parsley Me. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week to talk about folk magic and mysteries. 